used to that. I know what that feels like. Uh, we are going to be in First Thessalonians. <clears throat> you may have already done this. Uh, those of you who have children, you're, you're, uh, I'm not saying anything about your age, but imagine uh, you're dropping your kid off at college his freshman year. What are your concerns? Do you fear for him at all? Uh, his first shot at freedom, and uh, what is he surrounded by, him or her? Uh, obviously, you know that there are going to be great temptations on his mind, and, uh, that, and your hope is that these temptations and influences won't infiltrate his mind, at least the negative ones. And you wonder, have you prepared him well enough? And if you did, has he listened? And is he ready? In reality, are you concerned? And you are. Everybody would be. But you actually want more out of him or her than just staying out of trouble. You want him to excel. You want him to excel in his studies, not just get by. Uh, and I don't mean gender studies either. But the, the top class and something meaningful and important. <clears throat> what would you love to see, or what you would love to see, is his ability that now, alone, away from home, with his own choices, that he would separate himself from the bad and choose the good and throw his life into it, to be committed to it. The young man or young lady, to do that, to do it successfully, would have to have something, we know this phrase, would have to have a fire within themselves, right? a real fire. There are going to be other people at college, uh, that uh, have a fire within themselves, but it's the wrong fire. And those are the ones that you don't want influence in your little boy or little girl. To separate yourself from the bad unto the good in the Bible is called sanctification. It's the same word that is for saint uh, or holy. The same exact word. It's translated in all those ways. And it means to separate from the bad and unto the good, or in our case, unto God. And it doesn't come to believers automatically, and God doesn't force us to do it. We have to choose it. And if we choose it, the promise from God is, is that He will keep that fire inside of you going. We find out in our passage today that the fire is the Holy Spirit whom we can quench. But the fire is not in us, <clears throat> you know, forcing us. We have to choose it, which is obvious all throughout the Bible. God trains us to be able to see the value of sanctification so that we choose it. You know, why would that freshman at college choose to be an A student and stay away from all the bad stuff that are going to ruin his mind or soul or his body, is that he actually has a fire, a real desire for the good, and hopefully with the right motivation. Many of us would love to have this power, the power to choose the good and to reject the bad, to always do the right thing. We'd love to have that. And today we're going to see about, that's what we're going to examine today, the power to make the right decision um, and, and to, to truly love and to have joy in making that decision, you know, the opportunity. <clears throat> so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at the end of the book. And let's pray, <clears throat> excuse me, Let's pray that uh, God's word here, which is going to be about our performance in the church, which is the theme of this book, would truly penetrate our hearts in ways that we would that we need each of us, that we would be humble and reverent before God's word, so that what we do hear and learn will impact us greatly. So, with that in mind, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of your word and, and our position in you. Thank you that you have made us who we are. 
Because we are who we are, Father, you have given us a life called eternal life. It is a life that is of righteousness, of love, of sanctification, and of great things like joy and thanksgiving and perseverance. It's a life of strength. It's a life that is lived, which is divine, even though we in these bodies are fallen. But you have made us alive with Christ, and by that life you have given us a life to live on earth that is heavenly. May we see it, Father, therefore choose it with great joy. And therefore, Father, by your Spirit, keep the fire within us kindled and not quenched. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) So the theme of Ephesians, I forgot my slide in the beginning. There's the kid going off to college. I am terrible at these openings that I plan for myself, but there he is, freedom and responsibility, and that is, just looking at him, he's in trouble, right? Right? He's in trouble. That's going to be a party, party hound. (coughs) Excuse me. The theme of 1 Thessalonians is encouragement for the church to live godly despite persecution. Of course, this means each of us individually. But as you read this letter, you see that Paul has the church in mind and all of us together. He speaks of our, uh, our unity, our love for one another. Of course, he means this to the Thessalonians, but God means it to all of us. Uh, and so, and it is a letter of encouragement. Actually, both of them are. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, they're written very close together, probably not less than a year apart written from Corinth by Paul, and both of them are encouragement to a church in a city that they're surrounded by persecution. You and I, we we know nothing about this. You'd have to be a Christian in China or Iran or someplace like that to experience what the Thessalonians are experiencing. And yet they're doing marvelously, and Paul encourages them to not only continue to live godly, but to do it even better. (coughs) Excuse me. This is important because when we're feeling pain and pressure, we're more susceptible to give in to temptation. Uh, When we're feeling pain, we're more susceptible to the the lusts of the flesh that are going to ease the pain, or at least we think that it is, or that it's going to temporarily ease the pain. But as we all know, the payback on that over time is excessive. It's not worth it. <clears throat> First and Second Thess- Thessalonians are written by the Apostle Paul because he's concerned for a brand new church uh, who are surrounded by persecution. They're new believers. And new believers, as we all know, as Paul knows, can more easily fall away from the manner of life that they're taught. Uh, Paul's <clears throat> concerns are fueled by two things. They're new believers, mostly Gentiles, so they're from immoral pagan backgrounds. They can easily slip back into that. And Paul was, secondly, Paul was forced to leave them in the midst of persecution. He had to get out of the city quick. He had to get out of Dodge. And he had to leave these people back uh, or behind. And again, as I said, when people are under pressure and persecution, it's e- they can easily leave the narrow road that leads to life and try and self self-medicate uh, or, or get back, you know, go for their, in their case, would be to go back to their immoral lifestyles. So the theme of the epistles is the sanctification of the saints and to maintain their sanctification, our own, despite the fact that persecution and pressure comes upon us. Paul commends them for their holiness, uh, even in the midst of persecution. He tells them to excel still more, and he makes it clear that no believer will reach a level of maturity where improvement is no longer necessary. All of us need to continue to grow day in and day out. And and that's a wonderful thing because if you keep learning, you don't get old. I mean, physically we get old. It's obvious. But if we keep learning, our minds stay young. Our souls stay young. We keep learning. We keep striving. Uh, New learning is new things. New learning is new life. So, and it, it's amazing, right? Is the older we get, the less we like change. But God is still changing us. And, you know, we want to want to do things the same old way all the time. But why? You know, why? We to keep our minds healthy, we need to keep learning. 
and to keep ourselves young. So the letter opens with who we are in Christ. He tells them you're beloved by God and that you have love and faith and hope. These are gifts to us. Whether we use them or not is up to us. But every believer has faith. They believe in Christ as their Savior. They have faith in God. As Romans 5 says, God pours his love into us. So we have the love of God. We have it in ourselves. And we can actually, if we pay attention to the scriptures, we can learn this love. And we can live this love that God has given us. Why would we have hope on our own? Oh, heck no. And look, if the reality of what God has done to us isn't real, that's a terrible sentence, then what, the, what is written in this book would give nobody hope just because it were words or stories or poems or letters from one person to another. It would mean nothing if it weren't the reality of what God has done. And that's why I'm excited for this study. The study that we're doing is not verse by verse. The study that we're going to do this year is going to be every book of the New Testament at a much broader, in a much broader lens, so that you and I see the whole of it. We want what we're looking at this year is big picture stuff, themes. When we study books verse by verse, and so I'm, I'm going to give a plug here for my future study. I, now that I'm going to do it anyway, whether you like it or you don't. So, but. <clears throat> You know, when we get in verse by verse, we, we can get lost in there. We spent how many years in Ephesians? If I asked each of you, what is the main theme of Ephesians? Um, you probably remember the last thing we studied, which was prayer. Right? What's the main theme of, Ephes- of Ephesians? <laughs> What's the main theme of Ephesians? Right? See, I can't even say it. And that's why I'm doing it. I want big picture here so that we don't lose sight. And then after we do big picture, we're going right back into detail. I even know the book I'm going to do next. So right back into verse by verse. But we're going to go in and then out and then in and then out so that we get both. That's what I want for us. I want us to know both. I want you to know the theme, the big themes of what God wants. And I've thought about this and prayed about this that, when we're in the stuff, when you need, so like pressure is upon you and you need to apply the truth to a situation to maintain peace and chase out bitterness and fear and anger or whatever it is, are you thinking of detail or are you thinking more big picture? And I think in most cases we're thinking big picture. Right, that we're thinking, you know, I need to have faith here. Why, where's my faith come from? I need to believe. Right, I need to trust. That's big picture stuff. And I definitely, I personally believe that we we need this, and now's the time. Uh, so the opening of the letter is about who we are. The ending of the letter is about how we live. It's really, it starts in chapter 4, basically, but we're going to look at the end here, chapter 5. Look at uh, 5.12, and it starts with the pastor. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, so that you may esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, uh, the, <clears throat> the Greek word here that everything here is translated marvelously, and, but there's a slight variation or nuance here that uh, you don't see because it's translated instruction. At the end of verse 12, it says they give you instruction. But the Greek word is nutheteo, and nutheteo means to admonish or to warn. It does mean instruction. But if you skip down to verse 14, it says, uh, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's the same same exact verb. And in verse 14, it's translated admonish. But the context of verse 14 are the unruly. So when we're talking about this word here, nutheteo, yeah, nutheteo, well, that word, it can mean teaching, 
But the nuance here is admonishing. And what I want to bring out there is that the pastor is not always your friend. And, you know, we're a tight-knit church here so because we're small. And uh, at least uh, here face-to-face. And, you know, sometimes I know things about your life. And if something comes up across, you know, the Word of God, and I have to state this, you know, at, at times I know. I mean, I know in my mind, I, I, like so-and-so is going through something just like this, or so-and-so is going to get hit over the head with this, and or so-and-so is going to be greatly encouraged by this or whatever. I try not to think of it, but it's impossible not to. And so I'm not always going to be your friend because I'm not up here to do that. I mean, hopefully we are afterwards, but, you know, it, it's not. What, what's important about the pastor is that he instructs you in the word, whether it hurts or it's encouraging, right? Second Timothy 3.16, it's the word of God. It's God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for instruction. And what's the next word? Reproof. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the one who has to reprove you. So, uh, so I gave you a, a little Greek here that uh, to show that I just want to show it to you. Plus, I, I really dig in Greek in my in my in my life. But uh, there, there it is. Nuthatuntas, and it's a participle. So the, the little endings there tell you, but it's the same word. Nuthatuntas, and this last part there, that humas, that last word, that's the pronoun you. Right? And that's that's important. That pronoun is there. It's an accusative. It's plural. It means the congregation has got to get nuthateod, admonished, and instructed, and reproved. And it's all got to come from God's word. And so that's why Paul here now will say, and that first word is kai. That's and and admonish you. <coughs> Uh, it's a part. It's an active participle as well. And active means that he has to do it all the time. So as we admon, as the pastor admonishes, warns the congregation, uh, he's going to step on some people's toes, and that has to be okay. So therefore, we can understand God, Paul's next line. Look at verse thirteen, and here's your first. Here's your commandment: uh, live in peace with one another. As the pastor admonishes, the word of God is going to, well, there's many reasons here, but keep it in the context. Some people are going to like what the pastor says. Some people are going to be indifferent to what the pastor says. And some people are not going to like what the pastor says. And that can cause conflict. It can cause division. And Satan and his little demons are watching. They're waiting. I've seen this in my life, especially this last year, as I have striven to be, well, something. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And I'm so much more aware of the little things that I see around in my life that I'm like, that is weird that that is there. Or I see that. Or someone says this. Like the other day, someone said something. And I was like, how bizarre that they would say that to me. Nothing wrong or bad. It was just the timing of it was amazing. And I'm like, that was from Satan. It was a little jab to try and get my mind away. Right? To to get my mind off those eyes off of the Lord and to just kind of be like, you know, to look somewhere else. But we all got this. We are all temptable. And and I I've, I've come to believe that these things are everywhere. They're little schemes that are designed to trip us up. You and I both know it. All it takes is one little trip, and you stumble off the path, and then you just start looking around, and you stumble more. One little sin leads to more and to more and to more. And so we've got to be, well, as Paul puts it here, we urge you. Look at verse fourteen. Well, first, you know, uh, let's not leave that. Live in peace with one another. Who's included? Everybody. No matter what you've got going on in your life, no matter what other people have going on in their life, no matter the different personalities, likes, there are a variety of personalities in the human race. 
And a lot of our personalities are developed from childhood and they get kind of stuck there. What I mean by that is not that we don't change, because we certainly can change in an ethical and moral way unto godliness. We certainly, all of us, if we can't, the Bible's useless. But we can. But if you have a personality that's kind of like more reserved, more given towards like depression or loneliness or quietness, uh, you're, you're probably like that for your whole life. And it doesn't mean it can't change slightly, but, you know, you're kind of hardwired for that. And then there's others that are more uh, A-type personalities who are super outgoing. And, and there's everything in between. And we're all lumped into the body of Christ. And we're different. And Paul said, and Paul, this is Paul's, one of Paul's themes. You're going to see this over and over again in his letters. And this is peace in the body of Christ. Unity, peace, and love in the body of Christ. He longs for it. All right, so then he says, we urge you. This Greek word is parakaleo. It means to comfort, actually. Where we get The paraclete is a, a title for the Holy Spirit and for the Lord Jesus. This is the same verb, but here in context it would mean to exhort. So urge is fine. We urge you, brethren, and everything after this are commandments. They're all in imperatives, active Present active imperatives. And so he says, admonish the unruly. The unruly, this is a military term for being insubordinate. The original use of this word unruly in Greek meant soldiers who fell out of line. You know, who wouldn't line up properly. So, uh, admonish the unruly or the insubordinate. Encourage the faint-hearted. What a neat little word this is. It's uh, the word uh, oligos, which means small, with the word suke, which means soul. It's a compound word. And faint-hearted means small soul. Literally, it's small soul. Right? So it, it's, you know, I, I just love that, the imagery that these words bring out. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil. No one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. All right, now, so all this continues, you know, as 16, 17, and 18, uh, well, 16 through 19, I'm going to focus on a little bit. But, um, you know, notice this recurring idea. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16, rejoice how much? Always. Thank you. Pray without ceasing, right? In how much? Everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from how much evil? Every evil. Do you see this recurring idea of always and everything? Right? It jumps off the page. Always everything. How many people am I to be good towards? Everybody. How many faint-hearted am I to encourage? No, 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 no. I love to spit on the small-souled people. I like to put them down. It makes me feel good. We are to encourage. What about the unruly? Uh, we are to admonish. Help the weak. Be patient. With everyone. <laughs> uh, I, now, I think about that. The, only, the one I have the least patience with is my five-year-old. And uh, because she will, yeah, she doesn't have much patience either, by the way. She, we should know this. But uh, she has a lot less than I do. But I, sh- I need to hang that verse up in various places in our house so that I remember that. Be patient with everyone. So we see this recurring idea of always and everything. Always seek for good. Always rejoice. Pray always. And everything give thanks. Examine everything and abstain from every evil. Notice it says every form of evil. See that word form? It's a Greek word that means appearance. Right? Why, did, why would Paul put that in there? The sentence would be just fine if he said abstain from all evil. But he says from every form. That means 
what that would mean is, is that if it even looks evil, don't go anywhere near it. But what, what do we do? Like a car wreck, we slow down and look. Thing looks evil. I say, well, you know, it's not that bad. Maybe I'll investigate. <laughs> I, I am amazed. I am amazed, you know, um, and I did a class this week on sexual immorality, right? And I, I went after that because I know that the addiction to sexuality and pornography is prevalent. It's, it's huge in this world, which means a lot of Christians are involved in it as well. And I want to I give them the cure. because It can ruin your soul. And, I, and, now, and that has been on my mind. God put it on my heart. So I, I taught it, I hope with the gusto that I, I meant to. And uh, I've seen everywhere. You kind of get used to it, but now I see it every. It's everywhere that they're even. When I'm reading Fox News, and over there on the side is look this girl and this girl and this girl uh, wore this and wore that and went here and click, and you can see it. And you're you're like, huh? Let me go, <laughs> right? As guys, come on, this is the guys that get it, and you, it's everywhere. And you say what? Well, it's not that bad. What's one little click going to do? It could do a lot. You know, for any guy, it could do a lot. And it could potentially become something terrible. But it's everywhere. Satan's schemes. So, everyone, everything, all the time. Does God want a partial Christianity in your life? Does he want a partial sanctification? Those It's an oxymoron. They don't go together. Uh, in his wonderful book, this man's name is Van Hooser. I love that name. Van Hooser. He wrote this wonderful book called The Drama of Doctrine. And what he does in this is he sees the Bible in human history as a played-out drama equipped with a script Right? We have the script, the director, and the actors. And we are the actors. In the last part of his book, he goes from the script to the direction, the director and the direction. And then in the last section, he gets to the performers. And here's what he writes about the performers and the performance. Performance suggests that we are in the realm not of propositions only, but of action. And to speak of action is to emphasize the role of the actor. And he quotes someone who says, even in theater, we do not speak of how well the scenery, or that should be or, or the costumes performed. Like if you see a really good play or a really bad play, you don't say, wow, those costumes were terrible. It's the actors that are terrible. I guess it could be the script that's terrible too. But uh, I love the theater. I used to be a, a season ticket holder to a, a great little theater back in, in Rhode Island. I just loved it. But, um, you know, every once in a while it was terrible. And it, uh, most of the time it was the script. It was the script was terrible. Now, our script is the scripture, and it ain't terrible. It's magnificent. Our director is God. So that can't be bad. And here we are, the actors. There comes a time when the actor has to actually get out on the, on the stage and do his part. And that's what Van Hooser brings out. That Look, and he uses this word, uh, he calls it performing the scriptures. Not just reading them. And, and you could read them, then hear the direction from God that says, you know, you really have to do this. And then be like, well, can I just keep reading? You know, can I just, I'll just read the script over and over and over again, but I won't actually ever get out on stage. Right? And that's my pose. That's my Shakespearean pose. I'm not going to get out there and do it. And that's what sanctification is performing the scriptures. There's another thing that that is a part of performing the scriptures. In that, in the scriptures is the covenant that God has made with his people. And in the covenant that God has made with his people, with us, is the new covenant in his blood. 
And there to every covenant, both to Israel and the church, there is a climax. The climax is when the covenant is fulfilled. And what is that going to look like when the climax is fulfilled? What does the millennium look like? What does eternity look like? And for us, the climax is Jesus Christ himself in all his glory. What does that look like? If our lives don't look like the climax, then we're not in the script. Right? The climax is victory. The climax is heaven itself. Right? We're told in the scripture that we're citizens of heaven. We're in heaven. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We have heavenly ethics and the Holy Spirit lives within us. We're the temple of God. It's, you know, The temple was always a depiction of heaven. This is to be a depiction of heaven. <laughs> As I swat my, my body, it doesn't look like heaven but it's supposed to act like it. And that in is, the, the Scripture leads, Van Hooser does a great job of it, he leads the Scripture up to the climax of when you know, the curtain falls. What happens? It, it, it's over when the curtain falls. When my life is over, when we die, the curtain falls. There's no more to be done. Hence, now, you can see how Paul was just so adamant and excited about this to help those that he had brought the gospel to to live what the gospel did for them. So the particular type of people mentioned are in this passage the unruly, the insubordinate, the faint-hearted, and the weak. There are also those, and so all of those are found in our in our churches, right? in all legitimate churches. There are the unruly. I, always, I, I can't say that here, right? Because right? who among all five of you are the unruly? We'll, we'll pick Roger in the back. We'll pick on him. I don't know. But no, I, I don't, none of us are. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, churches that have numbers, there are. And, I'm, you know, at times it would be here, I guess. But the faint-hearted, we're always going to have those. Even in a small church, at times I get faint-hearted. You get faint-hearted. You know, it would be Paul's, and it would be God's, to God's great pleasure that we are so not absorbed with ourselves that we can actually tell when someone is faint-hearted and encourage them. That's what he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, as Hebrews says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We'd actually have to pray and consider others and think of how can I encourage them. Boy, and that's, that's some time not thinking about you. I have to do the same thing. As I hear myself say it, I wonder, do I do it enough? I can tell you that I don't. And that needs to change. Who are the faint-hearted? Who are the weak? We don't admonish them. What do we do with the faint-hearted? We encourage. What do we do with the weak? We help. And we say, well, I have helped the weak. And you know what? They're still weak. And it makes me mad. I've helped them. They're still weak. I've helped them. They're still weak. And keep reading. It's a Christian way of life, folks. Be patient with everyone. Come on, Paul. You can't mean everyone. Because some people <laughs> drive me crazy. And I say, yes, as he does mean that. Be patient with everyone. And so, and this is what sanctification is. <clears throat> and then he says, uh, let's see, do not despise prophetic utterances. This should be, so this has to be uh, brought forward into the modern age because we don't have the gift of prophecy anymore, at least in my opinion, and I think in all of yours. That there was a gift of prophecy in the early church. That gift was necessary. Think about the church in Thessalonica. How many Bibles are in Thessalonica at this time? Absolutely none. How many books of the Bible are there? Uh, well, I guess one. The letter to the Thessalonians. It's the first letter that Paul writes, the only letter written before this is James. Do they have a copy of James? I don't know. That's... Thessalonica is pretty far away from Jerusalem. 
Like James wrote to the diaspora outside of Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem and Samaria. They probably don't have that letter unless, unless Paul brought it with them or somebody did. Let's say that they did. So they have James and 1 Thessalonians. If that. And so um, in the gift of prophecy, someone would get revelation directly from God and speak it to the church and it would be a truth that they did not know or had not been written yet so that they could have the truth. This is, you, you can see how important this gift was. Because if all they have is this letter from Paul, what about all the other truths that we know and love and take for granted? Well, those are going to come from the prophets, the early church prophets. At least that's what we think. We, we can't, at least I, that's how I picture that gift functioning. So how does that apply to us? Well, none of us know everything. And so you're all, so a prophet in the early church is going to speak something that people haven't heard yet. For us, you're going to hear a message or something from the scripture that maybe you've heard but you haven't yet gotten full understanding. And so you're really hearing something new. So it's kind of the same thing, except I'm not getting my revelation directly from God. All teachers in this age teach from this book. And so we are not direct, we're indirect. So coming from the book, there's going to be things that, well, geez, you know, I didn't know that. Or there's going to be some things that, like, I thought it worked this way, but it doesn't. And each, here's something, we've all got to know this, and this is part of our humility, that in our hearts, in our souls, we have a doctrinal structure. All of you do because you've been into the Word of God for years. So in your heart right now is a file cabinet of doctrines. Here's what we have to know. That is not perfect. There's some things I've gotten wrong. Hopefully it's not anything major, and certainly it wouldn't be. None of us here believe that Jesus is not God or that salvation is not by faith. We believe that. But there are some things that we think are probably right but might not be. And we don't really have the full picture yet because none of us fully arrive. The pastor has to constantly do that nutheteo thing. He has to constantly teach and admonish. So <clears throat> we've got to understand so when he says don't despise prophetic utterances, to us it would be don't despise hearing the things that you have not known. And if you have a humble heart, you won't. But I have known and I've been there myself. Or if somebody tells me something, I, I saw two people get into a shouting match over water baptism. And and neither side, one said, you know, ever have to get water. The church that I was brought up in, that water baptism was not necessary at all for anything. That's what I was taught for years. And somebody else was, yeah, you know, water baptism is not for salvation. They didn't believe that, but they believed that every believer should get water baptized as a ritual. Now, I heard this argument and I was like, well, if that's what you believe, that's fine by me. As a, if you think it's for salvation, I completely disagree. But if you think water baptism is, a, is an important thing for a Christian to do, okay. I always say to myself, you know, I, I, was, I was born Catholic, so I've got the sprinkle on the head going for me. I got that baptism. And then when I, when I became born again and saved, I joined a Baptist church and I got dunked in the tank behind the pulpit. So I have both. So, I, you know, if you get to heaven and God's like, you needed to be baptized, I'd be like, Lord, I got, I got the sprinkle and I got the dunk. I got the submergent. I'm, I'm good. You know, maybe I should get the poured. <laughs> There's sprinkled, poured, dunked. And not too long ago, there was war over the sprinkle and the pour and the dunk. There was war. All out, we're going to kill you. Because you believe. And, oh, the other one, the Anabaptists, that's not no Baptists. They believed in adult baptism. 
that child baptism was ridiculous because children can't acknowledge anything about being Christian, nor are they Christian at whatever age they are. <clears throat> they can't understand the gospel. So the Anabaptists were getting baptized as adults. And they were hating. They killed them. They killed them over this. I saw two people getting into a shouting match over it to where you know faces were red and spit was flying. I couldn't believe it. What is that? You know what that is? That's kind of here. It's despising something that doesn't agree with your personal doctrinal file system. And I'm telling you, and you should know this, there's something wrong in there. (laughs) I mean that generally, and I also mean that doctrinally. And for myself as well. I don't have all knowledge, nor do you, nor does anybody. And so we should... So what does he say? He said, well, so I should believe everything that anybody says to me. No, no. What is he? Look at verse 21. Verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. <clears throat> examine is our old friend Dokimazo. Test it by the scriptures. So it's another problem that Paul faces over and over and over in his letters is false doctrine. Crazy. Brand new church. Church is what, 20, 30, 40 years old? False doctrine everywhere. It's all over the place. Crazy. Then, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, form is appearance. If it looks evil, don't touch it. <laughs> it makes me laugh the email that Brad sent me that when I said, when I was talking about uh, uh, Salmonella. <laughs> I did that little presentation on the little cilia that spin around in a, in, a, in a cell. And I said, look, you don't understand how this works. If the food looks rotten, don't eat it. And Brad sent me an email and said, thank you, Pastor, for telling me not to eat that rotten food. It was hilarious. Abstain from every appearance of evil. If, you, if it looks evil, do not click on it. All right, modern terms. If it looks evil, fast forward. Who is it? Uh, is it was it? Um, is it David or uh, or is it Joshua? I mix uh, for whatever. I'll put no unclean thing before my eyes. Is that David? I will put no unclean thing before my eyes. All right. Why? <clears throat> well, what did da- David's <clears throat> heart was for the Lord, right? He didn't want anything getting in the way. Was he perfect on it? He put that batchy before before his eyes. That, that wasn't good. And he act. Yeah, right. He didn't turn it right. He went up to the roof and turned on the TV. He, he sh- yeah, right. He shouldn't have, shouldn't have looked. As soon as he looked, as soon as he lusted, he should have slapped himself across the face or punched himself in a certain area of his anatomy and turned around and walked back off the roof. And that's what he's getting at here. If it looks evil, don't even go near it. All right. So, it is often wondered, how does a believer quench the Spirit? Amazing to me that uh, in, in my study now, I have more books on this than I've had before. I looked at seven commentaries. That's how many I could amass on this passage in seven commentaries in 1 Thessalonians. And five out of the seven said that quench the Spirit was directly related to prophecy. So he says, you can read it again with me, uh, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. Most of the commentators say quenching the Spirit is despising prophetic utterances. And so their reasoning is, and it's good reasoning, it may be that Paul means that. We don't have Paul here to ask him. But in the Corinthian church, they really loved tongues, and they didn't care much for prophecy. And Paul wrote to them, 1 Corinthians 14, he said, elevate prophecy, it's far more important than speaking in tongues. And they were quenching. So who gives this, these spiritual gifts, especially of prophecy and speaking in tongues, is the Holy Spirit. So what Paul may mean here that to despise 
the prophecy, and again, for us, it would be to despise the doctrines that we hear that don't match or they're, you know, they're new to us, would be to quench the Spirit. You know, that makes it somewhat easier to interpret that passage. Um, but I have two commentators. One of them is John Calvin, who thinks that um, this quench the Spirit has a much broader spectrum than just spiritual gifts. And I would agree with him on that. Because of the context. And also, go back to chapter 4, verse 7. 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Right? Your son goes to college. How is he going to act? God makes us new creatures and releases us into the world. We have all the privileges Right, to keep my analogy going, tuition is paid for. Everything is free. We have all the power. We have all the ability. All the right classes. We have the right script. We have the right book. <laughs> we have the right power. We have the right ability. We have all the brains to do it. What will we do with our freedom? <clears throat> God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And in keeping things simple, which I like to do, I would relate here. I wouldn't say they're the same, because Paul has them kind of in slightly different contexts, but really not, not. not. Paul, in this passage that we've read today in chapter 5, is about sanctification. It's about living the spiritual life. And in chapter 4, it's about living the spiritual life. And that is sanctification. If we reject that, we reject God who gives the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in the, in the phraseology or the, the context of rejecting. <clears throat> and then you have the quenching of the Spirit. And if it is about spiritual gifts that Paul's writing about, then fine. But what would the, the failure of spiritual gifts or the failure to receive God's word if that were what Paul meant, would be the same failure of a spiritual life. You know, the success of the spiritual life makes a believer humble. The success of the spiritual life, sanctification, makes us want the Word of God. We rejoice, right? This always rejoice. For us, it's like, yeah, Lord, we're on board with that. Always pray. We're like, oh, I love praying. Don't need to tell me. But thanks for the reminder, but I love it. I know everybody in this congregation and online and here were impacted by our study on prayer. Many had told me, and I would say again, keep it going. right? Because afterwards, it can drift away. I've seen, I've seen, I saw the, see the tendency in my own life that it wants to drift away. When I see it happen, and I pull it back. <clears throat> when, I, when I think to myself, hey, if I, am I praying less than what I was? That's when I go, I, in that moment, I go to God in prayer and talk to him about it. It's like a shot in the arm. It's like a good vaccine for once. Um, so, we have to live sanctified and love it. See, there's the live sanctified grudgingly. Like you've got a bag of bricks named sanctification hanging on your back, and you're just going to slug this thing through the mud and let, oh, fine, I'll do it, but ugh, I wish I could do something else. And that's better than not doing it, I would say. It's preferred, but it's not where God wants us. God wants us loving this, hence the rejoice always. If we don't live sanctified and love it, there's a disconnect between us and the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And our, be, don't be drunk with wine, for that is right, waste. It's waste. It's throwing your life away. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what, what was the promise of that? That we'd have joy, that we'd have service for one another, that we'd have strength, that we'd have thanksgiving filled with the Spirit. 
in the context of this passage, quenching the, quenching the Spirit is simply violating any or some or all of these commandments that he's given in this paragraph. <clears throat> but we must understand that Paul, as you read it, do you think Paul has in mind some isolated sin? He does not. He's talking about life here, as he does in all his letters. All of us are going to like all of us are going to be ungrateful at times. We all do it. All of us are going to be angry instead of rejoicing or cranky instead of rejoicing. But if that if it lasts only a little while, right? But and generally we're thankful and generally and we're getting more so. We're getting more thankful as we grow spiritually. That's what Paul has in mind here, not isolated sin. So quench is the Greek word spenumi. You know, there's, a, there's another word very much like it that's asbestos, where we get our word asbestos from. And it means to, you know, to protect from a fire, which is what asbestos does. Uh, <clears throat> so this word quench, it simply means in an, in an ancient Greek and in their Greek, Koine Greek, and notice here where it's used <coughs> uh, of, of, the, of the Lord's parable, it just basically means to put out a fire. And in the New Testament, it's re- it is in the context of fire. I, I want to say always, but I can't. I don't remember that precisely. So I'll say almost always. In Matthew twenty-five eight, the foolish said to the prudent, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out." It's a parable of the ten virgins. Five slept, didn't fill their lamps with oil, and they asked the other five for oil. And it spoke of readiness and preparativeness that we should have for all things, especially for the return of our Lord. <clears throat> so notice in the context, uh, there's the word going out is spinumi. And uh, so going out what? Going a lamp, the fire is going out. <clears throat> That's the word quench. Matthew 12:20 a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out that is the same word so again it's, it's speaking of the meekness of Christ he wouldn't put out a wick that's what quench means it means to put out a fire <clears throat> the language concerning the holy spirit's ministry therefore to quench the spirit would be obviously figurative can you put out the spirit That would be ridiculous. No, we cannot. But if we stick with the motif of fire, we can put out the fire that is within us. And the fire would be our thankfulness, our gratitude, our prayer lives, our aggressive and loving it, loving this spiritual life and loving God's Word. The imagery here is a fire within us. Now, the, there was a fire in the temple, wasn't there? On the altar. How long was that fire supposed to go for? Yeah, 24 hours. Never to go out. It was not allowed to go out. The fire in the altar. How often? So, never to go out. What did we see in our passage? How often are we to be rejoicing? How often are we to be thankful? Right? Or does God give us a... He doesn't say, all right, you know, you've been great. You've been grateful... And and happy for six days, I'm going to give you a day off where you can be selfish and grumpy because I know you want to be. Right? He doesn't give us a day off. He doesn't give us a moment off because he wants us to have life. <clears throat> this fire within us has to keep going. So rejoice always. Again, verse 16, 516. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. So if you look at quench the Spirit there in terms of the fire within you, this fire is rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, being grateful. It's this fire that burns in you. By the way, the fire is the Holy Spirit. However, you need to make choices. I found it, it was really, um, I snickered at Calvin's commentary who said, and I agreed with him, 
commentating on this passage that he said the quenching of the Spirit is much broad, broader than prophecy. That it is, it's uh, quenching the Spirit, I think as he said, is a spiritual life that has gone dormant uh, or gone to sleep. I think that's some of the language he used. But then in the next paragraph, he catches himself because Calvin doesn't believe in free will. So when he, when he got to his second paragraph, he was like, well, we all know that God has to make you uh, these things. And so we had some explanation of how God encourages us to keep the fire going. And, you know, in one paragraph, he said it could go out. In the second paragraph, he kind of said, believers and believers, it can't go out because it's not a part of your free will. It's part of the sovereignty of God. And I'm like, oh, John, John, just say it. I know you want to. You want to. I know you do. His number one student who, who took his, kind of filled his shoes, Malak, was it? it's Malachthon or something like that, wrote several letters to Calvin saying, you know, look, it's both. It's the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And Calvin wrote back to him and said, I see your point, but he, he just couldn't give over. It's very interesting. <clears throat> So, living the heavenly, holy life of divine ethics and morality without compromise and loving it so much that we always rejoice, even if we're in pain, that we pray multiple times a day, even if we're in tough times and in pain, and that we always give thanks, even in tough times and in pain. That we have this, why? Because we have this fire within us. When we choose to learn and believe and to do, God the Holy Spirit makes this fire real. Of course, we have to do this. The warning by Paul, these are all active commands. We have to do them. We have to choose to rejoice. And here's the thing, and you know, we don't know how this all works. If we choose to rejoice, God the Holy Spirit's going to give us the ability and, and do it. Right? He's going to do the work of giving us rejoicing. We get all caught up in this scientific mind of ours and we say you know which one comes first or you know is it <clears throat> forget about that nobody knows that you know that einstein was completely right that if you're moving through space time slows down for you relative to someone who's not moving in space it's absolutely been proven if you got in a ship a spaceship and took off at the speed of light and then you came back 15 years later you would be the exact same age and I would be 15 years older it's proven we go what that's something that we can actually prove with fancy clocks now you tell me that you're going to figure out how your decisions and God's sovereignty all work inside of your body to make you the spiritual giant that you're supposed to be. We can figure that out. What we're going to do is do what we're told. <clears throat> so, Paul writes to Timothy, for this reason I remind you, kindle afresh the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, this is not the same word as quench, or it's not related to it, but kindle, it, it's, a, it's a word that refers to fire. Of course, it's figurative. Timothy doesn't have an actual fire inside of him. But Paul is saying, look, you have this gift to teach. I'm passing the baton on to you. This is the last letter that Paul writes. Before he dies, I'm passing on the baton. You need to make sure that that gift that you have is on fire. <clears throat> I'm not going to be here anymore, Paul says, to keep the fire going. you got to keep it going. So Timothy can't like right lay on his hand. He can't say, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. Or, or he doesn't take the baton. It goes to someone else. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the fact that God says, you know, I could really get busy with you and do work in you, but you don't want my fire, do you? And when we don't, what are we settling for? Earthly fires? <clears throat> Notice, same word. I'm going to go back so you don't see it. <laughs> Ephesians 6.16 
in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Extinguish is, same word, quench, S-B-E-N, sabuni? Is that what <laughs> Sounds like a, I forget what the word is. Yeah, oh, spinumi. Same word, and... Notice our faith, the faith to keep going is what the keep the, the fire keeps going, is allows the Holy Spirit to keep it going, the faith to do what he has called me to do, the faith to keep studying, keep plugging, keep praying, all by faith, because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the climax of what the covenants are going to bring, but I read of them and I believe them. And by faith I so and funny enough that Satan has his own fire. These are flaming arrows. We might be taking the imagery a little too far, but because in the ancient world they fought with flaming arrows, they were important weapons. But uh, you know, could Satan put a fire in us for the wrong thing? I think that works. You know, a fire is that's kind of like lust, which is a fire to do that which is sinful. So let's finish last line here. Verse 23. <clears throat> In a way, God is saying, look, I know this sounds daunting to you, but don't fear. I know this sounds like a lot because you have to commit your whole life. I know what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to give up everything for me. I know that. And then he says this. Now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. <laughs> These lines, right? we run out of time and we rush to finish them up and, or we rush to read through them. What a promise. I called you, God said. I will bring it to pass. That means all your dreams will come true. Not all your dreams. Everything above and beyond your dreams will come true. It's worth it. And that's what God says here. I love how he says the God of peace will sanctify you. I will put you at peace. Don't fear. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for... This passage in this book, as we move on to Second Thessalonians, Father, in our study on Sunday, we just are so grateful for the New Testament and for the, the words and the thoughts, the themes that are in them. May we, Father, see them as you would have us see them so that we may live in them. The whole point of this is to live this life, not to just know of it, but to live it. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name, amen. What
Yeah.